the teaching text for today is Exodus 3, 1 through 6. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. All right, y'all can be seated. <clears throat> Have you ever experienced a moment in life that could only adequately be described by the word holy? A, a moment that uh, just felt special or set apart. Uh, really early in pastoral ministry for me while I was uh, pastoring at Asbury, uh, I got a call from someone that I kind of knew who uh, knew someone who was working as a nurse at St. Francis Children's Hospital. And there was this couple from Central America who they, they had been living in Gaiman and their eight-month-old son, Daniel, had been having some really big health complications. And so they were up at St. Francis Children's Hospital. Unfortunately, they didn't speak a word of English. And they were having some challenges with Daniel and knew we need to get someone with some pastoral sensitivities who speaks even a little bit of Spanish to come in and translate and hopefully, you know, help like, like bridge the gap between the healthcare workers and the family. And so somebody knew that Emily and I had lived in Honduras, and so I got the call. And after numerous visits with Pedro and Jeronima, Daniel's parents, it became clear that Daniel was not going to leave the hospital. And uh, I was in conversation with the healthcare workers and, and with the family, and they invited me to be in the room with them as they took their little boy off of life support. And the doctors and the nurses, some of you are healthcare workers, God bless you, who like regularly inhabit these spaces, just stood in silent alertness and watchfulness as this little boy went to be with the Lord. Well, a few days later, I was asked to lead a graveside service for Daniel, and Emily's grammar in Spanish is much stronger than mine, and so I had her translate the whole service for me into Spanish, and when the time came, it was Pedro and Jeronima and me at the graveside with the funeral director at a distance. And so I led through the service, all in Spanish, and I go through my notes and prayers and kind of prepared comments and encouragements for them, but there was a sense as the service was coming to end that something was missing. And we hadn't sung together. And in that moment, my mind went back to high school Spanish with Miss York at Metro Christian Academy and a worship song from the 90s in Spanish by Marcos Witt that we, we read together, that we listened to together as a way of like teaching us Spanish. And I had that awkward feeling that I often do or I know I, I kind of want to try something and it could totally bomb. I feel that right now, by the way. <laughs> And I started to sing this song. Renueva me, Señor Jesús. 
ya no quiero ser igual. Renuévame, Señor Jesús, pon en mí tu corazón. You know, try not to cry. My eyes are closed in case it's bombing terribly. And I look over at Pedro and Jerónima, and they're crying. And then to my surprise, they start to sing with me. Porque todo lo que hay dentro de mí necesita ser cambiado, Señor. Porque todo lo que hay dentro de mi corazón necesita más de ti. The song ended and we looked at each other. It's like, what just happened? The veil in that moment between us, people of different backgrounds and cultures, was lifted. And even for that brief moment, there was a sense that the veil between us and God had lifted. And it was like we had experienced a holy moment together. Maybe you've had moments like this in welcoming a child into the world. Or being present when someone departed from this life. I think of a holy moment for me happened in the life of our church when somebody told me they, they came to understand that God loved them for the first time. Oh, it was a holy moment, sacred space. And this is what's going on with Moses here. Moses is out in the wilderness. He's been tending his father-in-law's flock in, un, in like unexplored territory, new space, and he sees over in the distance this bush that burns but is not consumed, and he, he goes over to the bush, and God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, and he responds, here I am. And God says, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy ground. And it had to have felt like such a surreal, is this really happening kind of moment. I wonder if you've ever had a moment where you felt like God was speaking to you. And note that I emphasize felt like God was speaking. Um, as an alumnus of Oral Roberts University, I have the place where I can joke about this. But I sometimes get nervous around people who a little too confidently say, God told me this. Because in my experience, when people start a sentence with God told me, it often ends with something imposing for the listener. The steady example in fall of, of uh, years at ORU was God told me you're supposed to marry me. <laughs> Another one was God told me you're supposed to give me a thousand dollars. And it's like, maybe he did, but like, come on, how about a little humility here? So... You know, anytime like, I feel like that's happened, I'm, I'm much more likely to trust a person who says, look, I could be totally wrong about this. This could be indigestion from bad burritos last night, but I feel like the Lord is saying this. And, you know, sometimes like, there have been moments for me like, where I feel like the Lord has said something to me and it's changed the course of my life. I would encourage all of you to ask the Lord to speak to you. And just anticipate that in time uh, He will, if you want Him to and if you're willing to listen. Well, for Moses, this wasn't a gradual entry into hearing God's voice. He just jumps in the deep end. Uh, God speaks to him, and, and, it, and it really changes things for him. He, he, he shows up big. And then he gives the curious advice, take off your sandals. Why did, why did God do this? 
Well, maybe it was a way of foreshadowing how Moses would henceforth identify with the plight of his people enslaved in Egypt. Tons of people in the ancient Near East uh, wore sandals, but often it's not something that slaves would wear. And so maybe it was God's way of saying, get ready to leave behind a life of relative ease and become my servant. More likely than that, it was a physical way of respecting that God had sanctified this particular space with his presence in fire. And since, you know, people walk on all kinds of stuff and he's caring for sheep, surely he's stepping on poop here or there or gross stuff. And he wants to take off his sandals out of respect to, say, to communicate to the Lord, I understand that I'm, commu- I'm encountering something altogether other. Uh, one of my favorite worship leaders, Matt Redman, in his book Face Down, says that using the word other to describe God carries a sense that God is so pure matchless and unique, that no one else and nothing else even comes close. He's altogether glorious, unequaled in splendor, and unrivaled in power. He is beyond the grasp of human reason, far above the reach of even the loftiest scientific mind, inexhaustible, immeasurable, and unfathomable, eternal, immortal, and invisible. And then he shifts and he goes on to say, Many music critics note that the skill of songwriter Bruce Springsteen lies in his ability to take the everyday, the ordinary, and make it sound extraordinary. But sometimes in the church, we find ourselves doing the total opposite. We take the extraordinary revelation of God and somehow manage to make him sound completely ordinary. In other words, we've lost a vision of the otherness of God. Now, more seasoned uh, generations, folks of generations in our church could tell us how society has moved from a culture of formality and clear hierarchy and power structures to a culture of informality. So rather than wanting our leaders to appear, you know, perfectly put together and articulate and somewhat superhuman, another way of saying, uh, making them seem other... We now want our leaders to seem approachable. So one of the operative questions in evaluating a potential presidential candidate is, is it the kind of person that you'd want to get a beer with? That's the kind of thing that we ask. We want to see our leaders with their pets and their children. We want to, you know, know the playlist that they're listening to. We want our leaders to be relatable. And this is in part, I think, a consequence of some of the major institutional and leadership failures in the last 30 years. In generations past, we didn't really want to peek behind Oz's curtain with our leaders. If there were infidelities or improprieties, most people were not privy to them. But after Clinton's impeachment in the mid-90s and that whole scandal, there was for some a sense that we have now peeked behind the curtain and found that our leaders are not trustworthy. This skepticism toward authority figures is felt in politics, it's felt in corporate America, and it's certainly felt within the church. And much of this skepticism, I think, is warranted, it's appropriate. We've learned that nobody is completely above reproach. And so we're reluctant to respect or to trust anybody too much, and we certainly wouldn't give deference or implicit trust based on a person's positional authority alone. Unfortunately, our acquired mistrust of authority at times bleeds into the way that we think about God. 
Uh, for some, having learned the hard way that no one on earth is worthy of being treated as other, we fail at times to appreciate who and what we're talking about when we talk to and about God. And so you end up with t-shirts of Jesus going like this that says, Jesus is my homeboy. You know, some people, uh, well, I should say, some people have an overemphasis on God's otherness and an underemphasis on God's nearness and relatability. We err in extremes. So we end up with the Jesus is my boyfriend or Jesus is my homeboy kind of shirts as an overcorrection. What we must be wise in doing and learning to think well about God and our journey down the ancient path is to avoid treating as common and overly familiar that which is uncommon and completely other. There's a word that's often used to describe the failure to give appropriate honor and respect to something of sacred worth. It's a really powerful word. It's to desecrate, to desecrate. One definition of to desecrate is to divest of sacred character, to strip away the dignity and honor of sacred things. People can be desecrated. Uh, When a person insults or harms another person motivated by the color of their skin, they are attempting to desecrate that person. Uh, Racial hatred attempts to desecrate the dignity of human beings made in the image of God, and it's an insult to the Creator. People can be desecrated. Places can be desecrated. In the period known as the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Greek king Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple in Jerusalem and slaughtered a pig on the altar, desecrating the place. Uh, A pagan Gentile king... Uh, sacrificing an unclean animal to his own pagan god desecrated the temple. And it prompted this really interesting piece of history that that perhaps few know about with the Maccabean revolt. People can be desecrated. Places can be desecrated. Stripped of their sacred worth. On the cross, the Son of God was desecrated. Treated as a common criminal, spat on, mocked, beaten, pierced. And Jesus prayed for those who perpetrated such unholy acts, saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Forgive them because they're acting in ignorance. Their ignorance is leading to desecration. Well, if ignorance or failing to perceive or recognize the sacredness of a person or a place or even of God's self leads to desecration, what should knowledge or discernment of a sacred thing lead one to? to do? The answer is to practice reverence. Reverence is not a word that I hear at all these days in church context or outside of the church. But when you acknowledge or discern the sacredness of a thing, the appropriate response is to practice reverence. Uh, The word reverence used in the Old Testament comes from two Hebrew words that are pushed together into a compound word. Uh, And so, uh, the first of those words means fear or awe. And this is the attitude that one should have toward God. An example in uh, Psalm 89.7 says, In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround Him. The first part of, of reverence is fear or awe. 
The second part of this compound word, meaning reverence, uh, comes from a, a word meaning to fall down before one who is superior. So uh, uh, David's friend Jonathan, his son, comes in. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and he bowed down to pay him honor. So together we've got this awe and we've got this lying yourself down on the ground before one who's superior. So together, reverence is a bowing of the heart or the body out of awe or deference for one who is superior. Reverence is the bowing of the heart or the body out of awe or deference for one who is superior. When we talk about and think about God, the posture of wisdom before God is a posture of reverence. Those who come to see God as God really is, and as a consequence, who we really are, bow down in awe and submission and respect and deference. Uh, in the book of Leviticus, when uh, God's Spirit fell on the, the first sacrifice given in the tabernacle, the people responded in fear and reverence. The text tells in Leviticus, fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the offering. The people shouted for joy and they fell face down. When the Lord appeared to uh, Moses' successor, Joshua, he had a similar experience of, of reverence. The text tells us Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence. In the book of Revelation, uh, Revelation chapter 4, the angels and the living creatures and the 24 elders surround the throne and have this never-ending posture of reverence. The text says in Revelation 4, whenever the living creatures give thanks and glory and honor to him who sits on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, laying down their crowns saying, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive honor and power, for you created all things. This practice of deliberate reverence before the Lord is carried on into the historic church. In some traditions, when they cite the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, they'll bow when talking about the Lord Jesus. Apostles' Creed, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord deliberate reverence. This one you're going to find kind of funny. When I was ordained as a priest in the Anglican church, I was instructed as part of the liturgy of my ordination to lie face down in front of the bishop. It looks kind of comical like this. And it was quite uncomfortable. But it was lying face down in reverence for God, for like the, the holy and, and fearful task of service to Christ's church. The Apostle Peter said, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. But not only is a reverence before God the posture of wisdom, it's also the posture of reality. God is beyond our comprehension in power, in wisdom, and glory, and we are just microscopic and insignificant by comparison or contrast. Do you remember when you were in middle school and there was that bully in your class? And at the time, you thought they were like 6'7", 350 pounds, like super tough and super huge. And then years and years later, as an adult, you go to your mom and dad's house and you get out the yearbook and you look up the bully and you're like, oh my gosh, I was scared of that. That's just a little kid. Human arrogance and pride before God will ultimately be hilarious 
at the revelation of Jesus Christ and His power and God and His glory. Consider the words of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah 5. Hear this, you foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see, have ears but do not hear. Should you not fear me, declares the Lord? Should you not tremble in my presence? And God lists his bona fides. I made the sand a boundary for the sea, an everlasting barrier it cannot cross. The waves may roll, but they cannot prevail. They may roar, but they cannot cross it. But these people have stubborn and rebellious hearts. They've turned aside and gone away. They do not say to themselves, let us fear the Lord our God. In all of our conversations about God and God's word and God's world, we must never forget that we're talking about the one who is unmatched and unrivaled in his otherness. We are, just, we are outclassed in these conversations. The path of folly and arrogance is to regard and conduct ourselves as if God were common and unremarkable. But the path both of wisdom and of reality and seeing God as He is, is to adopt a posture of reverence. The bowing down of the heart and the body and awe and deference and humility to the God who is infinitely superior to us. Sometimes in movies or in real life, I'll hear people use the Lord's name in vain, like they'll say, like the Lord's name is a curse word. Or I'll see people use the Lord's name in vain, like slapping God's name in a place where like, it doesn't quite belong, like on a political poster to like, win support. And I have this impulse in me to say, hey, be careful with that name. In the age to come, at that name, every knee, willing or unwilling, will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So be careful with that name. Respect and fear and give reverence to that name. We're petitioning God to do just this when we pray the Lord's Prayer, which we will before we receive communion today. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're asking that God's name would be revered or hallowed or appreciated for its otherness in all the world. And where God's name is not revered, chaos follows. Where humans act as if there is no God and there will be no consequences for our action, mayhem follows. Injustice and hatred and violence and every form of pollution to the spirit, the soul, the body, and the earth thrive where God's name is not revered or hallowed. But there will be a day of reckoning for such acts of desecration. Uh, David said in Psalm 2, do I have that here? Nope. Act surprised when this comes later. <laughs> David said in Psalm 2, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Speaking to the rulers of the earth, he says, Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let the wise revere the Lord. Let his people pray that his name would be revered or hallowed in all the world. You're never going to guess this, but I have a quote coming up. Matt Redman again. He says, when we truly draw near to God... 
our sense of His greatness and might will always be heightened, never diminished. And any sort of worship that esteems drawing near to God yet somehow portrays Him as merely a tame and cuddly friend perhaps isn't as near to Him as we would like to think. As A.W. Tozer puts it, no one who knows Him intimately can ever be flippant in His presence. But how do we balance this fearful, you know, trembling reverence before God with the freedom and the approachability that we've been given in Jesus Christ? You know, the author of Hebrews says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In the text here, the author of Hebrews doesn't seem to advocate for fearful self-abasement before God, but this confident familiarity. And we get the picture we can just run into His presence with freedom. So how do we balance appropriate reverence before God with the freedom and the approachability toward God that we've gained in Christ? Well, the answer is that we don't try to balance them. Reverence and approachability are not meant to be in balance, like 50% of one, 50% of the other, but in harmony. So much of the Christian life includes taking two ideas, these oppositional at times ideas or virtues, and holding them together in paradoxical tension. And so God is transcendent, outside of time, utterly beyond us. And also God is imminent and closer than even our breath. God is perfect in love and the definition of love, and also God is perfect in justice. Uh, John chapter 1 says that Jesus comes to us from the Father full of grace and full of truth. And similarly, we should draw near with confidence because in Christ we are more loved than we can possibly imagine. And we should take care to draw near with reverence because our God is a consuming fire. God's approachability and God's otherness, like notes sung in perfect harmony, each accentuate the beauty of the other. We revere Him because of how deeply He loves us. We revere Him because of all that He's done for us. And we love Him because He is so worthy of our reverence. He's the eternally begotten Son of God, the object of the worship of heaven, the one in whom all things hold together. We love and we revere. We draw near with confidence and yet also with holy fear. This is the posture of wisdom. In your heart and in your life and in your worship, your engagement in the world, do you revere God? Do you revere the Lord? Of course, He loves you beyond your understanding, but do you also remember that He can squish you like a bug? And when we talk about God, we're talking about one who is holy and completely other. At the same time, in your heart, in your life, in your worship, in your participation in the world, do you also know that you can approach God with confidence as a beloved child? The one who is beyond time and outside of time and space has loved you enough to adopt you into his family. 
Do you also know this to be true? Far from being the only environment in which we express both reverence and love, but one that's central to our faith is the gathering of the church in deliberate worship. And in in the last month or two in our prayer gatherings on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I've been encouraging folks who come to worship bodily, to worship bodily, to say with our body what we're trying to say with our hearts. We lift our hands in worship. We're saying, Lord, I completely surrender to you. We bow. We say, Lord, I, I revere you and I honor you. I respect you. We stand with our hands open before the Lord. It's like, Lord, I'm willing to receive anything that you want to give to me. When we kneel, we say, Lord, I'm your servant. When we lie face down, we say, Lord, everything in my life is yours. It's utter, a position, a posture of utter abandon before the Lord. Our body can rhyme with the things that our heart is trying to say. And sometimes when our hearts are off, we need our bodies to do the praying for us, that our hearts will catch up. What what message is your body, your engagement with your body, sending to the Lord in worship? In reverence and in love, let's be a church that takes the liberty to worship boldly and to worship bodily. Both reverence and love, the approachability and the otherness, flow out of the heart of someone who has met God. But there's a Matt Rebin has this great song. He says, but no one can sing of things they have not seen. So open our eyes toward a greater glimpse of the glory of you. So I wonder, have you met God? Have you had an encounter with the living God, with the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit? I heard smart people say God ultimately comes, the Holy Spirit ultimately comes where He is wanted and where He's welcome. In in this time and space today, I want to encourage you to both to, to, I can't want for you, but I can encourage you to welcome the Holy Spirit. And maybe like you're just dead in your faith right now and your prayer might not be like I welcome you because it's not true, but you might say I want to want to. I want to want to welcome you. I'm pretty like happy. I'm pretty good on my own right now. But Lord, I want to want to see you. I want to want to welcome you. And one of the primary places in which the the church has had an encounter with the living God, with the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, is when we gather to receive Holy Communion. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, be careful in receiving communion when the church gets together. Some people have gotten sick. Some people have died because they've not adequately appreciated that this is a moment of encountering otherness. Simultaneously, people have been healed, have been delivered from oppression because they've encountered the risen Christ at the table. And today I want you to consider how you might want to posture yourself before God. If you've been withholding reverence, if you've been withholding love, staying at a distance or being too familiar and taking for granted the otherness of the one who has made all things and yet who's also entered time and space to rescue the world. And for all of us, all of us can move into a greater place of encounter with the risen Christ today through the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for that. Lord, there are moments like this where I know that like apart from the work of your spirit, 
our efforts are so fruitless and in vain. Unless it pleases you to send your spirit and to quicken, uh, like quicken our hearts with love and reverence for the risen Christ, like, like, there's nothing we can do. We can't force it. So God, would you pour out your Holy Spirit on Christ's church even now? Come, Holy Spirit. Awaken and rekindle love for Jesus in our hearts. Help us to glimpse you in your glory. Help us to have a hunger and a thirst to be in your presence. Like David saying, one thing I ask of the Lord, this do I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord, would you cause us to be people who out of reverence and love for you, thirst and hunger to be near you. We are living in a dry and weary land. We are living in the desert. Pour out your living water on us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray for those today who have not adequately appreciated the reverence that we ought to have before you. That you give them a revelation, God, of you and your glory. The response would be fear, love, and abandon. And for those of us, God, who, like you, have always been this distant figure, perhaps like an earthly father that some of us have had, that you pour out your spirit and draw them close, help them to know you as a loving father delighted to adopt them. Let them hear your words ring in their ears. This is my son, my daughter, whom I love with you. I am well pleased. And for all of us, Lord Jesus, would you just open our eyes toward a greater glimpse of your glory, a greater glimpse of your majesty. Help us to truly know you, hunger to be in your presence. And even now at the table, Lord, would you do just that? Would you nourish us on the person of Jesus Christ? For the sake of the world that you love, for the sake of the church that you bought, Lord Jesus, pour out your spirit. So pray in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.